listening to the Continent of Resistance, a podcast with interviews and discussions on labor movements across Asia. So, welcome to the latest episode of our, of our podcast on logistic workers and Korean truck drivers. I'm joined by my co-host Kyung. How are you doing, Kyung? Hi, Kevin. Yeah, I've been busy, but you know, I'm excited to host this episode. Yeah. Yeah, so you know, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating conversation on on logistic workers. You know, the really logistic has been this buzzword over the last few years, and people talk about choke point and and how logistic workers hold a lot of powers because of their positionalities. So we want to dive into what logistic workers, where they can build powers, and how they access power. But we also look want to look at the specific example of Korean truck drivers because of their strikes last year. So really to help us understand more about all this, we're very glad to speak to Wusan Lin. So Wusan is currently based in South Korea in Seoul, and she's working for the International Transport Workers Federation, the ITF, as its policy and strategy coordinator. And previously, she has a lot of experience with working with unions, including the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union, the KPTU, for well over a decade. So we're really glad to be joined by her to help us understand logistics. Yeah, she's it's been wonderful. We talked to her about logistic evolution. We talked to her about you know how. The global capital uses supply chain management as a, as a strategy, you know, to integrate workers from different places to the global supply chain. The strategy is using outsourcing workers to reduce costs and at the same time weaken labor power. So yeah, we have touched upon really interesting issues about organizing and and bargaining. Yeah, so it's great. Yeah, it is a very wide-ranging conversation, and I am sure people will find this conversation fascinating. So here's the conversation. All right. Good morning, Sun and Kiang. It's really nice to be talking to you. Hi, Kevin uh, Kyung. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Wusan. I'm really excited. Yeah, I, 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 you know, we were really looking forward to this conversations about a logistic because you know both of us, both Kyung and I, have been really interested in the the truck driver strike in Korea, but we're also quite interested in uh, talking about logistic workers as a whole, looking at the industry, looking at its history and its evolution and, you know, how, where we can build workers' power. So maybe, maybe we want to start with a little bit of self-introduction because I, I think you have a really interesting story, you know, of working for various unions. Can you, can you talk a, a little bit about your organizing background? Sure. Yeah, thank you. So I'm based here in Seoul in South Korea, and I have 
worked for the last over a decade with the Korean Public Service and Transport Workers Union, actually in policy, external relations, international solidarity, and the this KPTU. This union organizes across the public sector, but also in transport and logistics. And so it's given me kind of a chance to work with various groups of workers. And then I recently have moved to the International Transport Workers Federation, which is a global union federation based in the, in London, but uh, I remain here in South Korea. So I have a, continue to have a very close relationship with the, the transport workers in Korea. So maybe I can ask the first question because I feel like I'm responsible for coming up with such a broad question. I think, you know, a lot of people talk about logistics. It's kind of the buzzword in labor, but it also has a kind of interesting history. Can you, can you talk a little bit about where this idea of logistics or logistic revolution come from and what really what it means for, for labor? What does it mean in terms of the sort of circulation of, of goods and services, but also organization of, of labor relations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big question. I think to start, it's probably good to just think about the fact that in a capitalist economy, right, you, you produce goods. And then in in order to produce goods, you have to have raw materials, right? And then in order to realize the value in those goods, they have to be sold. And so there's always going to be transport that happens in that process to make the capitalist economy run, to make it possible for us to get the things we need, to accumulate capital. And when you start to call that transport logistics, it kind of basically means that the process of doing that, of moving raw materials and you know to production and that produce goods to to market and exchange is has become complex yeah yeah but i i would assume that the process that you just that you just talked about that you just mentioned just got more complicated more recently the the process of production before the period that we call globalization you know might be easier or simpler than that maybe can you Mm -hmm. elaborate on you know, this kind of history where it, you know, where did it get kind of complicated and why? Yeah, no, that's exactly correct. And so with globalization, suddenly goods and services are produced and consumed and distributed on a global level and in more and more complex ways. And what we call logistics or the logistics revolution, both came out of that process, but also really drove the process. So in order to make that possible, in order to make global, a global economy, you know, run in this very integrated and complex way, you have to have specialized transport and logistics services that connect these processes. And so with the logistics revolution, with globalization, like 90s, 80s, 90s, right? You see the development of specialized what we call 2P or 3P logistics firms. And then in, let's say I'm a, you know, a retailer. So I want to sell my things globally or I, I, I want to bring goods to me to be able to sell them, but I bring them from global, global production sites. Then I, then the, the company then has a, a supply chain or a logistics department that can contract with complex, you know, transport and logistics companies doing these complex services. And then. Those logistics companies are then also subcontracting out for different parts of the process, warehousing, road transport, shipping, et cetera. So I think maybe it's it's good to for our listeners to to know more in details about what who they are, 
right? When mm-hmm. we talk about logistic workers, it's actually involved a lot of different groups of workers, right? From dock workers, you know, to mm-hmm. warehouse distributions, mm-hmm. workers on the shipping boards, railway workers, truckers, even I actually, you know, don't have an exhaustive list, but can you maybe help us understand who they are? And mm-hmm. is there a way to kind of categorize or, you know, group them together based on their similarity characteristics or mm-hmm. anything? So how how do we how do we understand this wide range of workers? Yeah, I think, and I would use the term transport and logistics because sometimes if you talk about logistics, people tend to think of logistics as a smaller part of the process, which is like, it's that connecting piece. So they think about workers who might be doing customs work, right, to, to make it possible to import goods, or they will think about warehousing as logistics. So let's talk about transport and logistics and cover the whole chain. And the categories of workers you mentioned are, those are really perfectly relevant categories because generally from a union perspective, generally unions organize sectorally. And so they'll organize by mode. And then you've talked about, so you talked about seafarers, which are connected to workers who are working on docks. And then you talked about railway workers, right? Of which, of course, there's tons of different categories of different jobs within the railway. But nonetheless, in that industry, you talked about road transport, truck drivers. You didn't talk about air freight, but there's there's all of the workers who work at an airport to get stuff onto a plane and then, you know, of course, to to transport. So all of those workers are in, we, we would, would it be in logistics and transport and logistics. And I there's, you know, you can think in terms of those modes or in terms of sectors within the chain, but you could also think about, you could also group, depending on how you wanted to organize, you could also group them differently, kind of following the way logistics has de- developed. And so one example would be, let's take e-commerce. And look, you could look at the Amazon, for example, Amazon whole supply chain, and that would take you, you would look at like big trucks that are driving, you know, things to fulfillment centers, the workers in the fulfillment center, and then what we call last mile delivery, which is really important now with e-commerce, which is the guys who get this stuff to you at your house, right? right. And then within that sector, there's gig workers, subcontracted workers, permanently employed workers. And so you could you could group them this way if you wanted a kind of a strategy that would be, you know, like a, a strategy targeting Amazon, you would want to do that whole kind of chain. Yeah. And, you know, when just thinking a little bit about where I think a lot of us come from in terms of our original kind of engagement labor was a lot of us was engaged with manufacturing. So the way we think about it, sort of horizontal. So we're looking at probably just, you know, one, let's say a sector that produced, let's say electronics or toys. So, so looking at a chain, sort of vertical, if you will, is quite kind of really interesting sort of way to, to think about like, how, how do you, you know, contrast or compare those two ways of, you know, engaging with labor, organizing, et cetera, which in one way is kind of, you know, for lack of a better word, kind of horizontal, sectoral. Another way is looking at the whole chain. Is, is that something that you, you think about in your, mm-hmm. in your work? Yeah. I think that we think about organizing in a way where workers can exercise power within the context of the development of these complex supply chains, 
right? Which may start with a manufacturer or retailer and then, you know, go through all of the, include those workers in retail and manufacturing, but then go through all of these different parts of the transport logistics supply chain. I think you have to think about both. You have to do both. On the one hand, you recognize that the company at the top of the chain has power through the contracting relationships over the conditions and pain conditions of all of the workers down the chain. And so in order ultimately to improve their conditions in a sustainable way, you have to target the top of the chain. That would Then you would want to organize the whole chain. At the same time, because competition happens, it happens on a horizontal level. For example, <clears throat> I just talked about the last mile sector. So the, the couriers who deliver your like book that you ordered from Amazon or whatever to your house. In that sector, that's so horizontally, I said there are gig workers, right, that are working through platforms using their own vehicles. There are workers that are subcontracted to a small little company. And then there may be ones that are sort of permanently employed with a big a big company like UPS, right? And in order for them, they compete against each other. That's that's capital strategy, make them compete. And so in order to ultimately stop the pressure of that competition, which is what drives down conditions, which you also have to organize them sectorally. And so in, in the ITF now and to in within some transport unions, we're kind of thinking about how those two strategies come together. I know it's a little bit abstract, but maybe as we go on, we can talk about some specific examples. Yeah, I think in principle, when we talked about about workers leverage, we tend to think that, you know, logistic workers or a certain group of, of them hold strategic, you know, positions because they have more power to disrupt the, the circulation or linking back to production, as you said, right? And I wonder from your experience, you know, to what extent the workers can can exercise this power, especially you know you know in theory scholars talk about like the choke points, choke points talk yeah. about yeah and yeah maybe you could help us understand what it means in in practice, um, mm-hmm. which groups of workers actually can can exercise their power at the choke points and how do they actually build their their power and and exercise this leverage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's right. The, and one of the kind of one of the sexy or like exciting things about the logistics revolution and logistics and this idea of just in time, right, where you're reducing stores and transport and logistics become much much more important to successful capitalist production, is that then structurally that should give workers. In, in particular parts of the supply chain, an ability to cut off the supply chain, therefore have a bigger, quicker impact on, on profits, right? And, and therefore be able to exercise their power. And, and so, you know, choke points are things like, you know, like a very important warehouse would be a, or, or a port. Or if you can organize, um, and this did in fact happen in the, the truck strikes last year, you know, if you can organize, the majority of truck drivers who are driving, who are transporting cement from production to distribution sites or from distribution sites to construction sites, then you can like shut down buildings, right? The building process, which, which did happen here last year. And so, you know, there, that, that is really structural power that transport workers traditionally have in the logistics revolution then kind of strengthens in theory. But the, I think the flip side is that 
the the multiple levels of subcontracting that happened with the logistics revolution have put workers in much more precarious positions, which mm -hmm. makes them harder to, to organize, right? And so structurally, they should be able to exercise that power, but because it's harder to organize them, some in many cases, you know, that's that's not possible. Um, and right. yeah, that's yeah. that's also capital right. strategies. Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, yeah, you um, actually remind me of our work with gig workers. You know, yeah. I work with courier and writers in Thailand. Cool. And, yeah. and well, talking about structural power, you know, we we talk to them about their sources of power, where did it, where did where do they draw their power from? And you know, as you said, you know, they know that they have some structural power due to the now the the influence of the platform like Grab in Thailand, right? Like people have to rely on the platforms to get their food or to get their stuff moving around from, from one place to another. But at the same time, as you said, you, I totally agree. They have on the flip side, the way that this work, this gig is designed is that the platform can can easily replace them with other workers. So mm -hmm. they, but I, I actually want to kind of go deeper because when mm -hmm. people talk about power, especially from the perspective of uh, power resources analysis, you know, they, yeah. talk, they tend to talk about structural and organizational yeah. power. Associational. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Associ associational power. Which, and institutional, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you maybe, maybe links that structural mm -hmm. power to associational power, and perhaps you can give us some examples about mm -hmm. how, yeah, about what happens, what you observe. Okay. So it, it'll be easiest for me to answer that question if I use the experience of truck drivers in South Korea, because it's the one that's closest to my heart. So structural power is, right, the place that these workers have in the economy. Are they in a place where they can, they can do damage to the economy? In fact, they are. But associational power comes from coming together, right, in an organization and being able to act collectively. And the, the impediment, and then there's the third thing is institutional power, which is what kind of power do like laws and maybe bargaining structures give you, right? And usually if you have the first two, you can get good the second ones, right? So organizing power, associational power and structural power, it helps you win institutional power, like good laws. So it's good structural power for truck drivers, but the law is, you know, they've they've been as part of neoliberalism logistics revolution created they, they've been all made into self-employed formerly self-employed drivers so by law they don't have the right to form trade unions their right to collective bargaining is not legally protected and what the truck drivers in korea have done is ignored the law and formed their own trade union anyway organized on on a sectoral basis so instead of by company by company like we have to build power in a region you know, and, and in some cases in a particular supply chain. And so they got over this, they got over this kind of institutional limitation, came together, you know, and, and used very effectively create, you know, effective organization, associational power and brought those things, two things together and have been doing very effective strike action for years and years. The result of that was to institutionalize, even though their, their trade union rights aren't formally respected, institutionalize what is essentially industrial bargaining structure, which was the safe rate system, which created a committee with the clients who are the, the ones who contract for supply chain, representatives, transport company represents the union and government to set 
rates and conditions for for truck drivers. And so that that is a good example of how structural and associational power came together, one institutional power. And they were doing a good job of using it. And then but then the limitations of not being well, of not having formal trade union rights, but then also particularly of severe government repression have have kind of, you know, they've created new challenges uh, in this moment. What galvanized so much attention was the truck drivers strike last year, end of last year in Korea. And, you know, we're talking about sort of disruptive power or the power to disrupt. Can you give us some concrete sense how much disruption, for example, that strike cost? Not, not maybe not specific amount of dollars lost per se, but can you give us a sense of how we can think about the amount of disruption? hence their power that transportation workers could have. Yeah, so they were I can give you a euro figure <laughs> they, or a one figure. There there were two strikes last year around the defense and extent, extension of the safe rate system on a national level and by some estimates the collective Direct direct economic impact was 5.8 trillion won, which is roughly 4 billion euros. And the way that that was done was, you know, sort of in the large scheme of things, shutting things down, but not just every, I mean, many truck drivers stopped driving, including non-members, but in particular, they did what I was talking about before, stop transport at specific petrochemical complexes at ports, at construction sites, fuel distribution, right? So by targeting those specific, very important pieces of the economy and stopping transport in in those areas, they were able to have this, this impact, right, across. So in fact, the level of transport going in and out of ports dropped to, you know, like 20%. And it, there were times when, you know, building construction, construction sites basically stopped. And, you know, th- there was a lot of news about, you know, the, the supermarkets or the convenience stores don't have enough. So they, they can't stock their soju and beer. Right? Right, right. So, you know, we saw this through, through the economy. I mean, as somebody living on a daily basis, you know, like every day, did my everyday life, you know, like did something, did I feel it on an everyday level? No, actually. But I mean, if you're in the construction business, you would have, you would have felt it, right? Well, right. so doing beer can be disruptive if, you know, we can't find him. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's true. That's true. I mean, I, I, I you, you were right. Exactly. Go on. Sorry, Kevin, go ahead. No, I, I was. I, I think it's kind of important to emphasize the the amount of powers workers in general have, but certainly in the logistic transportation sector, because we hear maybe for for listeners in the last few months we hear so much about the the attacks by the government on on trade unions in in the transportation sector in construction etc cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think it's also important to emphasize that the amount of power the unions have built, right? Because you mentioned already transportation workers have gone strike many times and were able to disrupt the economy. Can you can you talk a bit more just to give people a, a better sense of the amount of power that the unions in, for example, in transportation sector have built over the last few years, which is, of course, a reason why the government has gone after the unions? Yeah, I mean, the, before I get to that, I, I want to say one thing is that that I think is important to recognize is that striking in that way is a huge sacrifice for those drivers, for members, because for two reasons. One, 
um, their owner drivers, which means they have to pay for, they pay mortgages to pay off their trucks, they pay for fuel, they pay for, you know, tires, parts, everything, right? And so the amount of money that comes in, you know, that they have, they get in their contracting relationship is quite large on a daily basis, even though the take home is, is quite small. So if you stop driving for it was a total of 16, is that right? No, 24 days total in June and, and November, December, like the amount of money that you're losing is huge. And it the union does not have strike funds to cover that. So that's one thing that's a huge amount. Second is, you know, the level of government repression means that people go to jail, they can have their licenses canceled, you know, they can they can face all sorts of charges and things, which we can get into later. But so th- this is also about the power is also coming from a huge level of commitment and and sacrifice. And, and it's important not to forget that. So but to go back to your question very quickly, for for truck drivers, the the success was to, inst- as I said before, institutionalize this power in what was essentially a quadpartite sectoral bargaining system, um, and then use that institutional power. Um, so now we are setting standards for pay and related conditions for some truck drivers on a national level, but then to use that as a demand in local level bargaining and in strike action. So let's say we set, you know, a standard for X amount of pay for a container driver on the national level. What does that actually mean on the ground in the area around Pusan port, right? For example, and then to, to bargain with shippers in that area to actually implement those rates and to, to organize drivers so that they can get that pay. Um, and so the union, in the three years that this system was in place, the union not only improved wages and conditions for many drivers, which improved road safety, but also expanded membership by several thousands of drivers, right? And that is why it was, it's been so scary for the government. You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. I think for me, it is important to maybe unpack this a little bit and and maybe go back to the organizing part, which is always the most difficult part and the the part that people don't usually get to talk about. You know what happens? How did they organize? And who organized them? Is it grassroots organizing, self organizing effort, or or who are the the organizers? And I <laughs> I guess I I want to come back to your point about. Them being contractors and the fact that they are not employed by like one single company, perhaps mm-hmm. it's good to highlight that they do not have traditional ways of working, like in the factory. So mm-hmm. maybe it's hard for them to, you know, have a place to meet each other. So yeah, how did you? How did it organize? Mm-hmm. Can you maybe mm-hmm. give us a little bit of step of by step explanation mm-hmm. so we we understand better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think there are different models of organizing in in Korea and used by different parts of KPTU, different groups of logistics workers and other types of workers. 
factors into one model would be that you have a hired organizer who works together with you know one or two key members on the ground to reach out to unions in a particular site, let's say a warehouse, right? That's that's what that's the basic model for strategic organizing of new sectors in KPTU. But in the in the case of the truck drivers, there are organizers in the head office who are hired separate, but this kind of organizing is almost entirely done by local truck drivers who are either, you know, working some of their time for the union, but not full-time. Sometimes, you know, one or two people in a branch, a local branch, will be, have come out of truck driving and now be working full-time for the union. But in this case, it's those drivers that are really doing this organizing. And traditionally, you're right, in, you know, in a, in a manufacturing, you can go to where the factory is, it's easier to meet. There are places that truck drivers meet, come together, right? Um, rest stops, unloading and loading sites. So it's, it is possible to meet them. And then I think importantly, with the developments that I was talking about and the safe rate system, it was very clear to drivers who the union was that was going to represent their interests, which means that they, you know, word of mouth, quite easy for them to connect to the union if they know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to benefit them. Right. So, so the existing unions uh, play an important role here, right? To be a place to connect them with the movements and also, you know, facilitate this organizing, as you explained, right? Do I understand it correctly? Yeah, yeah. that's correct. I, and, I just, and I think that it's important that this, this is a division within KPT, right? This division of KPT is organized not on a company by company basis. So if you're on a, you only want to talk to people in your company, but there are local structures. So the branches are on a, a local level, which facilitates organizing outside of companies that are existing, that are, are that are already organized. Right. Um, I think we, we actually touch upon the, the power resources a little bit before, and maybe it's good to go full circle here. And then you talked about you know, structural, associational, institutional. And in the case of the truckers' uh, strike in Korea, I wonder further societal or, you know, yeah. the support from, from the public, from the media and from, you know, Korean people in general. What, yeah, what was it like? What, how do they think about, what did they think about this strike? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. Yeah, that asked, asked that question because that's that's the fourth piece here, right? Um, and particularly with this truck strike. So the demand is about safe rates, and the reason we call the rates safe is because if owner drivers can't recover all the costs of, you know, like fixing their vehicles you know, paying off their vehicles, et cetera, then they end up skimping on maintenance and they end up driving for insanely long hours, speeding and overloading their trucks. And so there's lots of research that shows that if you make pay sustainable, you set it at a sustainable level and there's a way to do that, a calculation. And then also you have to get the companies that really have the power to take responsibility for that pace are the ones that are not just the transport company, but the clients or cargo owners, whatever you want to call them at the top of the chain, then drivers will drive more safely. And because that's the logic behind safe rates and the demand in these strikes, and it took a while to educate the public about this, but like with this, the first strike in June, the public suddenly got it <laughs> after me talking about this for 10 years, suddenly the public gets it. So it's about the right 
to, of drivers to go home safely to their families. It's also about safety of anybody who uses the roads. And that meant that there was, there has been quite a lot of support publicly for particularly the first strike and definitely for the safe rate system. And this is, of course, this is something we've done in Korea, but it's been done in other countries as well. So that that societal power too that comes from alliances with the public and so civil society is also obviously incredibly important. Yeah, and also thinking a bit more about about organizing, you know, I think to me always the Korean labor movement has always been very militant, and and so from what we can see from a distance, you know, the the transport workers, the truck drivers. Are kind of embodiments of of that militancy. Can you talk a little bit about the the kind of tactics, especially very militant tactics that the mm-hmm. the truck drivers and their unions ha- have used mm-hmm. in their in their organizing their mobilization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I should say traditionally that this is. KPTU Cargo Trucker Solidarity Division is the name of the, the division. We call it KPTU Truck Soul in English acronym. And so, traditionally, Truck Soul has not been very popular <laughs> because of its militancy until we kind of had this this demand around safe rates. And the reason is because they're very disrupt- <laughs> you know they're very disruptive, and they have to be that way because they have they don't have a lot of rights otherwise, right? And so the only way to improve conditions is to strike, and the way they do it is by blocking things, you know. And so you both you both of course there's the members who are not driving because or members and some non-members who are not driving. But um, if you also make it physically difficult for other trucks to get in and out of a port, then the other trucks are like, it's not worth, you know, like, maybe I'm not a member, but I kind of get what they're doing. And it's not worth it for me to try to, you know, drive through here. I'm not going to be able to. So they stop driving. And so it shuts, you know, the impact is much greater than just the members striking. And so that, I mean, blocking things is the, is the main um, tactic. And then doing that in strategic areas when, when it's possible to mobilize enough members. And then, I mean, the problem is that the police then come in and they instigate clashes. And then, and then, you know, this in particular in the second strike, the government really likes to paint that as violent truck drivers. And, and that's how, you know, the government, that's the government strategy to mobilize public support against, against the, yeah, the union. Uh, and yeah, and I was going to ask that exact question because I, you know, we saw that the, the young government really used that against, you know, the disruptions and the economic impact of that disruption against the union. So, you know, I, we certainly have seen a quite harsh prosecution of union organizers, you know, so far mainly in the construction sectors, mm-hmm. but not limited to it. Can you talk about the, the kind of state uh, attacks on transport workers unions specifically and how has, have the unions handled, responded to state repression so far? Yeah. So the, again, there were two truck strikes last year and the first one, the government kind of wasn't ready. It was a new government, right? And so the union won the messaging. There was a lot of support for the strike and the government kind of wasn't, wasn't fully mobilized to crack down. And then there was all sorts of internal critique and the government kind of internally mobilized to use both police force and all those kinds of traditional things, but then also a really aggressive media strategy and uh, and also really aggressive legal strategy and the, part of the legal strategy 
was to two things. One is to issue return to work orders, which have never been used before, which the constitutionality is questionable. The in terms of like international labor standards, it's also very questionable. We didn't really think they could do it because there, you know, there a law exists, but not, like not a manual for how to do it, but they kind of figured out how to do it. And basically, so if you're in a sector where there's a return to work order, if you keep driving, you can go to jail, you can be fined, and you can also lose your your license to drive a commercial vehicle, which is like a really, you know, it's losing your job, right? And your your means of livelihood. And so that that was really huge. And the other thing is, and this is also being used by the government against the construction workers, is to say, hey, you guys are self-employed, you're small businesses, your union is not a union, it's a business association. Therefore, what you're doing is cartel activity. And they haven't, so that they're really doing that on the construction workers now. And they started the process during the strike in, in December and then may return after <laughs> they finish with the with the construction workers. And so it's, it's really important to, you know, have both, you know, a solid strategy of solidarity, but a legal strategy in, in response to this. I want to pick up on one point that you that you mentioned, which is related to this state repression and the responses is, you know, you said that because they're they're precarious, because the truckers, you know, have precarious conditions and they have to make a lot of sacrifice. And when they strike, I'm sure, you know, it's not easy to sustain the strike for a long time. How did they actually yeah, do that. You know, is there any support from the unions or what are the strategies to kind of support them during the time where they don't get the, the income? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So financially, you know, unions that have permanently employed employees generally have strike funds and can cover a certain amount of salary or like in the rail union in Korea, there's a minimum service, so some workers stay on the job, so they like share. But you can't you can't do that with self-employed, formerly self-employed truck drivers. So, in fact, the the workers are, are losing money. There is, you know, there's funds within Truck Seoul, funds within KPT, the the central head office union, or the rather the the parent union, to support things like you know legal fees, or if somebody goes to jail, to support the family of uh, somebody who's sacrificed in that way for for the movement and and then the unions also so trucks are also in order to bring together funds to at least support the continuation of the strike like rallies and eating while you're on strike and things like that is you issue bonds that people in the labor movement buy other people and then you know they're like no interest bonds so yeah so they also have done that to raise money but it is not the same as supporting the lost income for the drivers just just to be clear so again it's it is really a big sacrifice and i think that drivers sacrifice because they understand the importance of the safe rate system that they were fighting for yeah and and i i also do want to ask about the international aspect of of transportation you know one, one thing just broadly about logistic is its transnational international nature and of course, you know, in your case, the ITF, the International Transport Workers Federation, organizes internationally as well. Maybe can you start by giving us a, a kind of broad sense of how organizing is happening across national borders, just generally? And then maybe can you talk a little bit about, in your case, how does that look like, you know, what sort of international mm-hmm. or transnational organizing look like in your own work? Yes. 
The International Transport Workers Federation is a global union. They exist for on a sectoral basis, and so transport unions around the world affiliate to ITF and therefore can be in touch with each other through the ITF and work in solidarity, including on organizing. And so there's lots of examples of how this has happened. Traditionally, the ITF has strength in maritime and the power of dock workers. So dock workers would stop ships, right, to support seafarers who weren't getting good paying conditions. They also did that during apartheid. Uh, against South African ships, right? And with an impact on, you know, in supporting the anti-apartheid movement. That in maritime led to the development of an international inspectorate now where uh, the ITF has inspectors all over the world that inspect ships for if they have good coverage from bargaining, from CBAs, you know, agreements and good conditions and things. And it created a, an international industrial bargaining forum, right? So that that's that's the maritime strategy. The key now then is to maintain the militancy now that there are these institutional you know, structures, right? So that's that's in maritime. In logistics, there have been efforts to bring together workers in the same company like DHL. So ITF has an agreement now with DHL and UPS, et cetera, FedEx, et cetera. But we're trying to move towards a strategy that's not company by company, where we're going targeting the top of supply chains and using the power, the contracting power of shippers or cargo owners, clients, whatever you want to call them, to then enforce good standards and conditions in throughout supply chains globally or within like particular cross-border contexts, for example, like trucking in Europe. So that's that's what is being worked on right now. Um, for me, safe rates fits into this strategy because the safe rate strategy is to use that bottom-up power to win these kinds of bargaining structures, either private, like in a in agreement with a, a shipper or a cargo owner, or through like the legislation that we have won in Korea and exists in places in Australia and Canada and things like that. To then, you know, to then again make sure that we're we're targeting the power, regulatory power from governments, but then the power from the the cargo owners or shippers or clients to enforce standards across the chain and then use that again to to stimulate bargaining. So we're bringing unions together to fight for safe rate systems and agreements in their national context and some sub-regional or regional contexts. And um, we're, we're building it into a global strategy and a global campaign. The last question I want to ask before I even ask the questions about the strategies, looking ahead, because, you know, we have heard from you about the changing situations of contractors or the logistic company using more and more contract workers as one capital strategy, you know, in the supply chain. Well, you know, in the last few years during the pandemic in particular, we people have heard more and more about the term supply chain, global supply chain. We felt what it means when the supply chain is disrupted. So I, I wonder if you have a, any last thought to add into uh, your last point that you just mentioned about the, the strategies of logis- mm-hmm. logistic workers to sustain their power or to strengthen their power, you know, in the midst of all of these challenges from the capital, from, from the state uh, repression. Sure. So you mentioned kind of the public discourse on supply chains and in part of the union world and civil society world, there's there's quite a 
you know, part of this discussion on supply chains has led to what is called due diligence, due diligence legislation. We see mandatory due diligence legislation in France and Germany now and potentially on an EU level and in certain other contexts, um, which basically means companies have to take responsibility throughout their supply chains for human rights and labor rights and, you know, environmental impacts and things like that. And there is a lot of interest in the ITF and globally in using this sort of due diligence framework, mandatory due diligence laws to emphasize the need for companies to work with unions like the ITF, because now they have obligations, right, to clean up their supply chains, i.e. to improve, to, you know, improve violations of labor rights and human rights and, and raise standards and conditions. And so that, that's a, a lot of what ITF is doing right now is in that framework. And I, and there may, there's quite a bit of interest in it. I, I guess my last thing is to say that that strategy is, is quite, quite top down, right? And so it must come together with this kind of bottom up organizing that we've been talking about. And that's kind of, that's what I'm thinking a lot about these days. I don't think we have a perfect answer to it yet, but it's, I think is what ITF is working on right now. So stay tuned. Great. Yeah. I kind of just have one kind of follow up final questions about sort of running up all the responses that you given about, you know, international solidarity, what that looks like, you know, because I think we want to build worker to worker exchanges and solidarities across national borders. And, and you already mentioned some examples, both historically and, and in the present. What would say, you know, workers, this is a hard question, say in, in Thailand or in Indonesia, who are seeing what's happening in Korea with the with the transportation workers, how could they show solidarity, if at all, either mm-hmm. either symbolically or concretely? Mm-hmm. What what would kind of lo- international solidarity around logistic workers look like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's of course lots of different ways to talk about that. With the truck driver strikes, we did lots of solidarity actions and things last year where unions did protests at embassies and things like that. And I'm sure that, you know, there will be moments where ITF and the Korean unions call for that. But actually, in this moment, the the best way to be in solidarity, particularly with the fight of truck drivers in Korea, is to look at how you can introduce safe rates in your country. And this is, this is definitely important for gig workers who are also paid too low to be able to drive safely and often on trip rates or, you know, on peace rates, right? And so if the best way to be in solidarity is join the global safe rates campaign and let's have a conversation about what would this mean in your context. I'm anybody who wants to have that conversation with me, with the Korean truck drivers, I, that will be my first priority because the best way to, to defend the system is to expand it and, and expanding it is also how we will ultimately equalize and raise standards, um, build solidarity and use that, that solidarity and power to make the industry fairer, safer and more sustainable. And so, yeah, becoming part of the conversation and that strategy is the best way to be in solidarity. Sounds great. Yeah, that's, that's, I think that's a good place to to end this podcast. It's been lovely talking to you, Usan. Thank you so much for the for your for your time. Thank Thanks. You. Stay in touch.
Hi, Kian. So uh, I'm dying to ask you about the Thai election, which I think was getting a lot of attention, not only in Thailand, but internationally. You wrote uh, actually a piece for ARR just before the election, looking at the, the labor angle, uh, what did the election mean for, for the labor movement, for workers. But first of all, let me ask you if you were surprised at all by the election result and what's your take on, on the outcome? Hi, Kevin. Yeah. I was actually not really surprised by the result. I mean, I talked to some people after the elections and most of them seem to be surprised that the Move Forward Party won so many seats. But, but I, I guess for me, I was even before the elections, I was surrounded by people who seemed to me were, you know, supporters of the, of, of the party, and maybe because I, I was in Bangkok, so, you know, Bangkok's one of the strongholds, and I can right. feel that a lot of people, even some of the workers that I talked to, they really, really supported this this party, yeah. But uh, in, in general, it's, I think perhaps at the national level, it was a surprise to see that this party has done so well to to overtake the uh, the main oppositional party, Thai. Yeah. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I really recommend people to check out your article uh, in AR because I think it has made a lot of really interesting and important points. But one of the things I, I want to pick up and, and see what you think is, you know, you, you emphasize the fact that, you know, a lot of the, the opposition parties really centered uh, or putting their platforms, minimum wage increases and mm-hmm. welfare protection. So, you know, if the, or is given the opposition parties have won, you know, we may expect some progressive social reforms possibly. But I think you also emphasize the, the absence in a way of organized labor. How, how can you and help us understand this kind of, I don't know if that's a, a, right. a, a, a dichotomy. How do we understand paradox? You know, on the one hand, those huge amount of inter- political interest in, in wages and, and, and welfare, but at the same time, the weakness of the labor movement. Right, right. Yeah, it's excellent question. Yeah, I think we need to understand the political economy of the, of the wage determination in Thailand to begin with. And, and I wrote in, in, in this piece that since, since the 2014 coup, you know, there was, there's been an attempt by the military backed government to find a take back this wage determinations or the wage minimum wage determining mechanism because before that we had an elections that kind of democratize or popularize minimum wage. It means that actually political parties when they during the campaign they would make a promise on minimum wage setting, especially minimum wage increase. And then once they got to form the governments, they would implement that policies, right? By increasing the wage. Historically, Thailand has a tripartite system to determine the wage. And this system has been, uh, not effective to actually, you know, make the minimum wage align with the, the demands or needs of the workers. And I think the other thing that I need to point out is that a lot of because the unionization rate in Thailand is pretty low, right? And when you have the trade union movement that is not strong or quite fragmented, you know, a lot of 
uh, workers in the workplace where the, their right to unionization is not recognized by employers. They use the national politics or, you know, the public space to kind of advocate for the minimum wage. So the minimum wage in Thailand has been, if they increase, not, they would not be increased by the tripartite, but would be instead increased or advocated in the politics at large. So that's, these are the, the, the main factors that, you know, have become important, right? So, so on the one hand, as you said, we see that the, the, the minimum wage has been stagnant in the past eight or nine years. Um, and because of the inflation, because of the um, impacts of pandemic on the rising cost of electricity costs and everything. So, you know, all the parties know that this is what people want. So they, it becomes an important policy or, or a platform for, for main parties, you know, we, across the board, right? But, you know, as you mentioned, um, I think we also have to, to highlight the fact that there's shrinking civic space and, you know, a lot of crackdowns on freedom of expressions in Thailand. Well, at the same time, you know, on the ground, the organizing activities uh, have also been decreased as well. So I, in this piece, I really want to highlight that, you know, when the civil society put a lot of effort into monitoring this election process mm -hmm. and they, they're putting a lot of hope into this exciting new party, we shouldn't ignore the work on the ground, especially from the labor perspective. That is something that's important and strategic for us to build power in the long term. Right. And, and I think the, the license here, I think, applies to a lot of similar places elsewhere, right, where there are political parties that have progressive platforms, mm. uh, but at the same time, without having a very strong independent labor movement with very strong org organizing on the ground, you know, whether they will actually deliver on those progressive reforms, it is really a question, right, without the, the strong showing of organized labor. Right. I mean, I, I, I would have to add that actually the, yesterday I, I saw the news that the Move Forward Party already announced the upcoming raise of minimum wage, which, you know, which is good news, you know, it's long overdue, but, but there are other things, right? As I mentioned in the, in the article that, you know, collective bargaining and right to associations have to be strengthened and those issues are harder to do and it, it requires a lot of pressure and, you know, collective power to do that, to do so. Yeah. So thanks, Kevin, for asking me that question. It took a while to explain. You also uh, travel to the Philippines. The last time we met in Bangkok, before you, before you traveled to the Philippines. So how did it go? Who, who did you meet with? Yeah, I, I was in the Philippines for only briefly for three, four days, but it, it was really interesting. So I was taken to, to sort of a region just south of Manila, Metro Manila. So it's a, it's a place where there are, is a concentration of factories in a sp special economic zones. So I, I, I was able to talk to some of the union organizers at factories in the economic zone. You know, they are very brave, uh, and, and very strategic and brave organizers, organizers, because this is also an area where in the past few years, there have been a lot of, uh, arrests and even assassinations of union and other community organizers. So that's, that's, you know, it's really impressive that they are continuing doing that despite all the 
risks. But the other thing that really make me reflect more on, on just looking at the region, you know, Asia as a whole. So in the Philippines, the, the central demand of the movement is, is reversing or ending contractualization. So this idea that, that, you know, we should convert workers into regular workers rather than casual contractual, you know, short contract workers, because, you know, with regular employment, you get benefits, job security. And if you are fired or laid off, you're entitled to a higher level of compensation. Sometimes you don't get anything if you are a contract worker. Right. But what I think what, what makes me reflect more is the different languages that say different you know, countries and different labor movement use, right? So we sometimes talk about informal workers and sometimes we talk about non-regular workers. And, and in this case, we talk about contractualization of contractual workers, but they're all, all talking about essentially the same thing, right? It's, it's the, the right. degradation of labor conditions, the loss of job security and all that. So I find that really fascinating to reflect on. Right, right. Yeah, I think this issue is, is really present in Southeast Asia, actually, mm. not only in the Philippines, Thailand, in Cambodia. Also, you know, the presence or increasing uses of contract and agency workers mm. actually weaken the, the power of the union or trade union movement right, in, in right. the region, right? So it's one one important strategy that, that the labor movement need to counter. Exactly. And I think that's, you know, a lot of the work you do and, and a lot of the work that our friends in the labor movement do is exactly the organizing those non-regular workers or informal workers, right? Because that's the, as we keep saying, that's the majority of workers in Asia. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not in regular uh, employment. So right. I think that's really where the, the organizing is happening and, and where the hope is uh, to revive the labor movement, right? Exactly. Exactly. You have been listening to the Continent of Resistance podcast. You can download our latest episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also visit our website at laborreview.org. See you until next time.